This is the fall line. In this series, we speak with people who have seen gaps in the way that we report on, record, and disseminate information on violent crime. These advocates, journalists, scholars, and researchers have recognized the need to create more complete databases of the violent crime experienced in the United States and beyond. That can mean cataloging the missing, the murdered, the unidentified. It can involve looking for patterns of concern, like the clusters identified by the Murder Accountability Project. It can mean making the first national database to catalog John and Jane Doe's. For our ongoing series focused on databases, we were lucky enough to speak with Todd Matthews. Many view Todd as the original citizen detective and one of the very first web sleuths. If you've read the book Skeleton Crew by Deborah Halber, you may be familiar with his work. But even if you haven't, you've probably accessed Todd Matthews' databases dozens of times because Todd was a founding creator of the Doe Network and he still owns the platform today. The Doe Network website preceded NamUs and any other organized index of missing and unidentified persons in the country. In fact, law enforcement used the Doe Network for years. We've come across printouts from their webpages in dozens of police files. After working on the Doe Network, Todd was tapped to help develop NamUs. That's the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, and he spent years helping to run it after its launch. You might imagine Todd is a computer systems analyst by trade or someone with a background in forensics. But no, like many people listening to this podcast episode, he was a regular person, not involved in law enforcement or science, who grew up extremely interested in a single cold case. Unlike most of us, though, Todd Matthews actually managed to solve the one that he'd been studying for years. From that point on, he's done just about everything from speaking at law enforcement conferences to working in radio and even TV. But he's still living in rural Tennessee, where he began his research into his very first case, when he was still in high school. I sat down in the fall of 2020 to talk with Todd about his experiences in database creation, in early web sleuthing, and about his current advocacy work. At that time, the uncertainty surrounding NamUs' future was not yet public, so we didn't discuss those issues. For anyone who may have missed it, in 2020, UNT, that's the University of North Texas, which has facilitated much of the testing and day-to-day operations of NamUs via federal grants, announced it was ending its relationship with the NIJ, or National Institute of Justice. That would also end its involvement with NamUs. The statement they released made many believe that, for all intents and purposes, NamUs would no longer exist in a truly functional form, and there was large-scale public and professional concern. After a few weeks, UNT announced that they would continue their work with NamUs, namely by accepting a grant allotment, but the future of the database still remains uncertain. When I asked Todd about this in December of 2020, he told me that he's hopeful that NamUs will eventually be stabilized, both via funding and via a permanent home. Of course, none of this was on the horizon when we sat down to talk, so keep that in mind when you listen to the interview. 
In December of 2020, Todd spoke to Undark, a digital magazine, as part of a larger story covering NamUs's uncertain future. He told reporter Michael Schulson, quote, They're having a budget crisis, and that, in Schulson's paraphrasing, UNT had been, quote, focusing, in his opinion, too little on long-term sustainability. Though Todd hopes he can one day work again with Namus, he's not remaining idle. In December of 2020, he was appointed county coroner and deputy medical examiner of Overton County, Tennessee. This appointment was specific to missing and unidentified persons' cases and to cover some of the gaps left by the Namus program. When Todd and I first spoke, I asked him to introduce himself. My name is Todd Matthews. I live in Livingston, Tennessee. I've been married for 33 years, almost uh, father of two, grandfather of two grandchildren. And apparently, I'm also the first cyber sleuth. So, Todd, like many other people in the true crime sphere, I first came across your name in my research on unidentified persons. And specifically, I read an article about your 1998 identification of a Jane Doe who was then known as Tent Girl. I want to get into your relationship to that case, but first, could you describe the case to our listeners? So Tent Girl was a Kentucky case, Scott County, Kentucky. Uh, She was a body that was found in a a canvas tent wrapper, which is Tent Girl, so it was like the circus tent. So she was wrapped in one of those, very much like a sleeping bag, and she was found in on May 17, 1968, by the man who would later become my father-in-law. I wasn't born at the time. This was two years before I was born. My wife was literally born into the case, and uh, it was something she was familiar with her entire life, uh, was the legend of the tent girl. And, you know, she was Jane Doe, obviously. By the time I heard about it in October of 1987, 33 years ago, um, she had been unidentified by that time for like 19 years, right at 20 years. You were a high school student when you first heard the story of this woman or girl, as they thought at the time. Had you had any interest in mysteries or criminal justice up to that point? Well, of course, I was just a 17-year-old kid trying to figure out, you know, as a senior, what what's next? You know, and of course, law enforcement, military was a prevalent in our life. My dad was uh, in... Uh, Vietnam had been exposed to Agent Orange. I grew up with a lot of medical problems, and I didn't really, uh, I don't think I would have thought I would have had the stamina to have done something like physical, like a police officer. Often I was drawn to television, uh, you know, Unsolved Mysteries, uh, loved those shows. And I think deep back in the recesses of my mind, I wanted to put stories together. One thing I've seen you mention in a number of interviews is that you had a really strong feeling of connection to your departed family members. Specifically, you discuss your younger brother and sister, who I believe both died in infancy. And it seems like you made a connection there between your siblings and the love and memory you had and Tent Girl, who was unidentified and alone. Can you tell us a little more about that? I think the fact that I knew them and knew they were real helped me make the tent girl more of a real thing. Like, I never really, I was two year old when my sister was born and died within a very short period of time. So she never came home. But, you know, I knew her name. You know, I was just a small kid, but, you know, we knew what she was going to be named. So I think she was already, I knew somebody was coming. You know, another child was coming to be with us. And uh, that was, that was, 
just something there was an expectation that wasn't delivered, and I didn't really understand why then. Uh, I then had a brother that was born in 76. I still remember the day in kindergarten when my dad came and picked me up, and Mark was, uh, he was a well child. Uh, you know, he had a few seizures, a few medical problems, but nothing major. We both had a few defects because of Agent Orange, but uh, nothing, you know, that was too traumatic with my brother. And then my other brother was born, Greg, and he died. Uh, he was born, he lived to the next day, you know, and I'm, I was very conscious of the entire pregnancy. Uh, I knew his name, what his name was going to be, everything. So there was another expectation that somebody was coming home. And uh, and I knew them, you know, after he passed away, you know, I saw how it affected my mom and dad. Uh, literally, I saw my mom at his grave on her hands and knees and that, you know, we got the Tennessee red mud here and, you know, with red mud all over dad's putting her in the car and that red mud might as well have been like blood. You know, it just, it's just horrific, um, emotionally jarring scene to see that. And, uh, you know, the impact that absence had on us and, uh, my wife often says we torture each other by, you know, bringing them up in conversation, but I don't really think we're torturing ourselves, I think just the reference to fact, you know, as long as we still mention them and know that they're still missing from our lives, it's just like we didn't regulate. We're, we're just like there's still somebody missing and that's okay. So I think I grew up with, with two missing pieces that we recognize as a missing piece. We didn't just reformulate and uh, this family is complete and you know, our family will never be complete because of two people that died in an irregular way. You know, it wasn't murder. I knew what happened to them. I knew where they went. Don't know exactly what killed them, but they weren't taken from us. Uh, you know, so that makes a difference. I wish it could have been different, but I couldn't go back and change it now. And I wouldn't if I could, because we've developed who we are now, and they are part of who I am now. So one of my greatest strengths, uh, you know, that gave you the compassion for a Jane Doe that was in a very similar spot as they were, is also one of my pains. So it's like my kryptonite too. You know, my greatest pain uh, also fuels my greatest compassion. Now, I always knew my brother and sister's names on a tombstone. That's the first thought in my head is their name written into the tombstone. Pent Girl didn't even have that. She had Pent Girl, but it wasn't her real name. And uh, I felt like if I could at least put her real name there, and if I couldn't, then... She would be my sister, too. And it sounds strange adopting somebody and death, but it's like um, if you have nobody to love you and nobody to remember you, we will. Because she was part of our family. Uh, you know, my father and I found the body. So, you know, there was some physical connections to that body. And it was a, a person that my wife had grew up with, much like my children. You know, Tent Girl was a constant in her life. So, uh, you know, Tent Girl is very much the same. We had to find a way to incorporate and at least give her what she didn't have. And that was, at the time, a family. And then when you joined that family, you became what we call now a citizen detective. And you began to try to identify Tent Girl. But you didn't have any of the tools that we take for granted now. So how did you begin your research in the late 1980s? You know, I first stood at her grave when I was 17 years old. I had to see the grave because that's what I could relate to was her grave. That's what I needed to see. Uh, there was a master detective magazine that my father-in-law had that he left me after he passed away. So I still have it. You know, it, it's a huge part of my life because it's a physical representation. But uh, uh, it, it was 
the information superhighway was blacktop. You literally went there. A uh, paper map. You know, there wasn't any digital map. That's uh, no cell phone. It was all at the time right before this, and certainly no internet. There was uh, it was a manual process going to libraries, newspaper offices, explaining your story as best you could, and asking why uh, if, if they had a copy of a newspaper article. So Tent Girl become somewhat of an urban legend in a very small area of Kentucky. So she become a boogeyman type thing. You brought up every Halloween this time of year, they'd run a story, and they didn't mean to disrespect her. It's just uh, she was uh, something that was it was scary, you know, to for somebody to be missing and deceased and murdered, and she was thought to be a young person. It was scary, and I think local officials used her as um, a lesson. You know, if nothing else, you know, she'd become a lesson of what could happen if, uh, you know, if you're not conscious of things. But at the time, it was a long distance phone call. You know, we dialed a phone that threw sparks when you dialed it. So it was just like non-technical and uh, had to hope to get somebody on the other end that uh, might be sympathetic to what you're asking and not just hang up on you. Like, I'm, I'm looking for a story from 1968. And I just spanned out, you know, I would go to the next city over to see if they had heard of it, the next city over to see if they had a newspaper article. So just kind of like a concentric ring, I was just taking my search broader as far as I could go uh, until the point that I found, okay, here's here's the circumference of this mystery. Long distance phone calls, they were very expensive at the time. You know, children today, well, young people today don't understand that. And, uh, it was just a very different, difficult time. And the things we take for granted now were costly at that time, especially when you're making minimum wage. Now, I know you contacted law enforcement along the way. How willing were they to share information with you, and how did they view your interest in this case? So contacting law enforcement along the way, usually they didn't know what the hell I was talking about. You know, so I'm having to go back and explain the story, and it was sounding very weird. So there was this Jane Doe, and it, and, they're, and you're telling someone they're they're probably just shaking their head and looking at the phone, probably like a, a scene in a comedy sitcom. You know, like oh my god, this guy's crazy, and uh, we'll have somebody call you back. Or uh, sometimes it was quite honestly quite rude. You know, what's it, or how are you connected? Um, I'm I'm not. I, I don't know. There was really no explanation as to why I was pursuing that, uh, other than I'm just nosy. Uh, so usually the phone call didn't really enter. They didn't have anything. Nothing was digital. Everything was hard copy files, and you're literally pulling out a drawer and digging through it and get somebody with the uh, inclination to help you do that. It's kind of hard. You know, I had a few invitations. You can come up here and talk to so and so, and they'd refer you to his story and. Or the local newspaper. Usually the local newspaper was the most helpful because they had somewhat of an archive that they'd refer back to as course of business. So, uh, you know, usually they were some of the most helpful, but still didn't find exactly what I needed. I was looking for a missing person story uh, that had been published in a newspaper somewhere that I could tie directly to Tinkle. So that brings up kind of an exciting change that happened in the early 1990s which was the burgeoning internet, which you took advantage of as soon as it became available. And we're talking dial-up, we're talking message boards in their earliest incarnation, and lots of listservs. How did that access change your research process? What did you have access to, and what did you begin to look for? So the access was very rudimentary at the time. Literally, I said, you dial the phone. And uh, and if somebody calls you, you get knocked off the Internet. And the the speeds were just blindingly slow at the time. So it was just, 
I tended to use an Ouija board. You know, you're trying to make a connection. You might or might not. You might think you have something, but you don't know the accuracy. And most websites at the time were basically a business card. They'd look just like somebody took a photo of their business card or just replicated the data. Very few pictures. You know, it was just, it was literally nothing. Uh, uh, there was a, there was no Google. Uh, there was Alta Vista, Dogpile. There was just so many different little search engines that come and went. Um, GeoCities website. I was in a strange new world. And there wasn't a lot to see at the time. So I, initially I was a little disappointed because I thought, well, I'll get in here and be like Star Trek. I'll access the database and I'll pull out the name of the tent girl and that'll be it. Well, that didn't happen. So I, I never thought of myself as having to become an architect of the things that I wanted out of the internet. You need a chicken cup, you build it. You need, you need something, you just you just make what you need if it's not readily available. Often not because you can't afford it, it's just that you, it, maybe what I want doesn't exactly exist, but I know how to make it and I can make it work. I thought, well, I'm just gonna have to make it work for me. So, uh, you know, there was early databases of, uh, I don't even call it a database, but like Craigslist. The Craigslist of the day that I found was called Crane and Hips. And it was like a message board website that uh, uh, literally you could buy a puppy, uh, something for sale, lost love, you know, uh, just anything. You know, it's just a hodgepodge board that you might see at a grocery store. And that's the way I think about it. When I think of a Craigslist, I'm thinking of that court board store uh, board in the, in the grocery store lobby where people stick up, got a kitten, got this, got squash, got that, need this tear off your telephone number if you want to buy this. That's what it was. It was just a virtual version of it. So uh been familiar with it. You know, I understood that there was going to be a hodgepodge of things in there. Uh, I looked, nothing. So, I mean, you're going back to the well many times and you see a few different things, but nothing really changing. So uh, I really got tired of telling the story of the tent girl. If I would call people in law enforcement and I'm having to go back to uh, – well, there's this thing and this girl, and I was explaining it over and over. Well, I had the newspaper articles and the magazines that kind of described it, and my father-in-law's uh, description of the tent girl. He had a different opinion as to some of what the newspaper stories expressed, and I understand why that was different now. So that's something I'll catch up on a little bit later. Um, what I believe was gospel in some of these newspaper articles were not always scientifically proven facts. And I knew that the Master Detective Mart article was somewhat embellished because they did not interview my father-in-law. They used a different name. It was hard to separate fact from fantasy, uh, the embellishment. Luckily, I had the human being that had actually been there that could help. Okay, this is real. So I had somebody that knew the newspaper article uh, and, and knew that that's all true. I did this and I was there. Uh, this is not so in this particular article, but it's a great story. And, you know, that helped create the urban legend of the tent girl. So I put it online. You know, I took everything I knew about her, and I wasn't trying to necessarily build the first be on the lookout case file for a Jane Doe or a missing person online. It just happened. I needed a way to share that information with somebody. So I built something, and I think it was it was maybe more than what I was building. I was building it for my, my own purpose. I wasn't trying to invent anything. I was trying to create something that I could use to say, just look at this, you know, for the intro, and then we'll talk about it. You know, saving me some time on a long-distance phone call. You know, I could have somebody to, you know, read this, and I'll call you tomorrow. 
and it really saved me a lot of time. So it was, it was very much a necessity to have something like that. Um, you know, just something to kind of give somebody the gist of the story and then we can talk about it. So that was a tool. And I thought that people or family, if they were out there, they might see it. They might call me, somebody that might recognize it. Um, talked to a local news reporter, TV reporter, John Wesley Britt, and kind of basically I was just trying to show here's what I got done. And I'd like to find a way to get people to see this more broadly. So I, I was hoping that maybe through their website that had a link to it, something to kind of uh, just move it on out there, something to grease the wheels. Well, he was happy enough to take a look at that, and he connected me with people that I already knew, which was the Scott County newspaper and uh, and, and, and Georgetown, Georgetown Graphic. And uh, I'd already, you know, they were already familiar with somebody that comes and makes the photocopies. And what I didn't know he was impressed with was the fact that I made a website for her. You know, now somebody calls me today and says, I made a website for a Jane Doe, and it's like, big deal. There's a lot of them out there. You know, that's not a big deal. So what I did at the time, today, I would say, so. You know, it's, it, but at the time, it was the first one. So everybody knew I built a website. You know, and it caught the eye of a medical examiner there and, uh, you know, didn't really make contact at first. But it's like, well, you know, we can put stuff online. We have other John and Jane Doe's. Um, so, you know, that was just something that was brewing in the background in the meantime. I'm going to have to find ways to go out there and go back to that big court board in the grocery store, the virtual grocery store, and start pulling down things and comparing them to what I have. And um, I found something in January of 19, 1998. And uh, it was a woman that was looking for her missing sister. Um, you know, she described her. And I knew then this is her. It was the first time I ever called them. I said, listen, I think you're... And it's what we don't do now. You don't just call families now. You don't just reach out directly to families. You know, we, we've learned different. I was lucky. It worked out really well, but that's not the formula used now. You know, there's there's people that play ball with you now, and there's people to receive this data. At the time, there was nothing. It was, we were just out in the land of the lost trying to figure out how to keep the Tyrannosaurus Rex from eating you and, and, and getting where you needed to get, you know. So we were in the wild, wild west of the internet. And I did contact her. At least I had it. You know, like, your sister's an urban legend in Kentucky. So look. You know, so I didn't have to use that term, but I just said, I have a website. I think this might be your sister. Take a look at it. So I'd already, I think it was an email at first. I'm not even sure she received it at first, and it was a phone call. And so I don't think she was expecting what I had to tell her. My father-in-law always felt like her sister was in her early 20s and had children. The earliest description of the tent girl said probably a teenager, and then they bumped it on up, but never really out of the teenage years. So my father-in-law said, I saw her body. She had well-developed breasts. There was a baby diaper in the bag, which was documented in the newspaper article, and she had painted fingernails that had been broken off, probably trying to get outside of the bag. He felt it was a person that was not a child, and he had several children, you know, daughters too. From his assessment, he didn't feel like it was a child, but maybe a young person. I went with that. And I wondered why his assessment was different than theirs. You know, we had people that were non-forensic people that saw the body originally, mostly because of her stature. She was a short person, you know, probably probably a kid. And there wasn't a forensic anthropologist or an odontologist or a pathologist. There was nobody there. You know, they did do an autopsy on her later, but the initial assumption was, this is probably a very, very young person. So I skipped her head in my mind to a young person, possibly a mother, because of the 
cloth that you know diaper. So that was what I was looking for that was slightly different. I could have been wrong. It was just theory. But it was real. And, you know, what I saw with the description of um, Barbara Taylor, Barbara Hackman, that fit what I felt like was her. And uh, I knew right then. There had always been a feeling of guilt if I stopped looking for tent curl. You know, if you get, you know, me with a southern accent back at the time and you're calling people in other areas, northern areas, you know, and I wasn't. Uh, you know, I just went to high school. I didn't go to college. I was a factory worker. So, you know, you, you call with a cruder language than I have now. That's 33 years ago, more than that. I, you know, it, it's been a while when I first started. And I uh, didn't know the terminology, so I'm sure I sounded a lot more crude than I do now. And, uh, you know, it would be embarrassing at times. I had people, you know, what's it to you? Uh, it, and some were really, really rude. You know, like they didn't have time for this. And, of course, I sounded like a kid. You know, so click. Uh, suddenly, everything had changed. You know, I it, it was her. So I knew when when that was that name, the burden lifted off of me, and it was so heavy. I didn't know heavy how heavy it really was until it lifted off. I knew then, but I also knew then. Now we got to prove it. This is not. They're not just going to put a write a name on the toe tag and say you're right. So I didn't realize we'd just opened the lid of Pandora's box. Now everything was starting to fly out of it. That must have been such an incredibly complex experience for both of you because her sister was out there actively looking for her. And I know you said that you came upon a post that she had made herself on the Internet in these early days. Do you remember where you saw it? I saw that posting by Rosemary and then later by her, the tent girl's daughter. I still call her tent girl, but I also call her Barbara. They called her Bobby for short. And uh, it was on the Hibs and Crane website, you know, the Craigslist of the day. That was it. You know, and I, you know, I get, of course, you go back and repeat. You go back and look again and rub your eyes, go to work, come back, look again. And, you know, I did find later that her daughter and, and essentially her stepdaughter, uh, we're looking for her as well. So they kind of had replicated each other. I think they all, they all three had realized that the likelihood she was deceased. You know, some of her older sisters, Barbara's older sisters, um, held out the hope that maybe she had just uh, escaped a, an abusive spouse and, and started a new life. You know, his story was uh, she left with another man. And, uh, you know, he had a story that covered everything. I don't think a lot of the family particularly believed it, but they really didn't have much of a choice. So once you connected with the family and they had a possible identification for the Jane Doe, it thrust you into the spotlight. It thrust them into the spotlight. What happened next? So I was thrust into a spotlight I was not entirely prepared for. So that was, you know, there was newspaper articles. I literally thought there would be a newspaper article, uh, there would be a name, and then I got to realizing, oh, my God, they're going to move her. You know, they're going to move this grave, and this grave has become part of my life, too. So selfishly, I'm thinking, well, it, it, ha- it is what it is, but I didn't really – so that was bothering me in the background. We didn't initially discuss whether or not her grave was going to be moved. I just knew it was going to be opened, and I was bothered by that, uh, excited, scared, worried, uh, Wondering why people cared about the tent girl now when, when she was a Jane Doe or there was no tentative ID. I couldn't get people to listen to the story or write a story. It was hard, you know, uh, to get anybody interested in it. Now suddenly everybody's interested in it. There's times that I think, oh, my God, I could have had a very different life. Uh, not that it had been better. 
the tent girl has completely, here I am 33 years later from to the, to the month when I first heard the word tent girl. I'm a 50-year-old man, grandfather of two, father of two, and I'm still talking about tent girl. And it become part of uh, my way of life and way of living and, and the way I made an income, not directly from her, but the, the things that were created because of her inspiration. So I never expected to, for this to be not just my thing, my career, my everything. I didn't know it would have this impact on my life. And there's so many cases that you've worked since then. And I want to talk a little bit more about your early web presence, because I think that many people know that you were an early member of the Doe Network admin team, but I don't know how many people know that you'd actually had your own website before that, which was called The Lost and the Found. Was the goal similar to the Doe Network, or was that actually closer to what NamUs would eventually be? Well, I didn't know. I was building on, you know, because once the tent girl was identified, uh, you know, I literally was hearing from law enforcement, cold call, direct call, like, we have a Jane Doe here. We have a missing person here. Can you build us a page just like hers? So, you know, now we have these things called, you know, they're cyber units that do these things. At the time, there was no cyber unit. I was the cyber unit for a lot of agencies. Can you build us a page too? And here I am trying to, you know, it's like, oh, I kind of got to, you know, so, um, you know, it was the early, early stages of what we have now is their web presence. You know, a lot of them didn't have websites. So it was uh, the call and they try to do it. So I'm trying to think of a way lost and found was what I thought of um, the lost and the found. And I was trying to just create a place to put things. Uh, I worked with the medical examiner of Kentucky and they gave me my first batch of cases. They also, you know, that surprise, surprise, the tinker wasn't their only Jane or John Doe. You know, I didn't know that because it was in non-digital format. Uh, it was in newspapers that I hadn't looked at. So you couldn't Google it. Even if I uh, tried to research it then, it didn't show up on the internet. It was not digitized data. So we began to digitize it. So this is the first time many of these cases were ever digitized. And I was trying to put them on uh, the lost and the found. And I was in the web. I wasn't a web designer. I was just basically doing everything as crudely as possible. You know, and I would even add on to another page and try to replicate the process while living, carrying out my life as factory worker at the same time. So I was trying to at least, uh, and because of those uh, message boards, you know, lost and found, obviously you want to be lost and found. And so that's what I did. And I was putting it together and I found Yahoo group and it was called one list at the time. And that's when I started hearing from people. I'm a web sleuth in Australia. Well, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm interested in crime and I live in, um, Canada, you know, so I was starting to hear from other people. It's like, wow, who were you all, all these years when I didn't have anybody? Talk to me about forming the Doe Network, the goals for your project, how data was collected, and how it was used both by law enforcement and just by regular citizens. So literally, I had a cold cases one list group called, uh, it was cold cases, that was the name of it. And uh, that was where people were starting to come together. So that initially become, you know, when Doe Network become, uh, wow, the formatting looks great here. The HTML is great. We have this person that can do that and this person can do that. Now we have to start getting people to look at it. So it's just like, okay, uh, everything I knew was lost and found, I'm just going to dump it here. I'll just start working here because it's working uh, the cold cases group was where people were talking, and the cold cases group is still there. You know, it's many years old. It went through several 
owners like Yahoo and uh, that type of thing, but it's still there. So that was the, the, the forum was the cold cases group. If people still want to look for that, it's still out there. The archives are still out there. People can still read early conversations of this. And that become the forum in which the Doe Network operated on. That was it. You know, that was how we were talking to people. And this one was doing that. And literally people was, hey, there's a Jane Doe in uh, St. Olaf, <laughs> you know, and, and here's a newspaper article that I clipped out and scanned and sent to you, or I clipped it out and put it in an envelope and put a stamp on it and mailed it to you. And people drove it up to your house in a car. And you, it wasn't an email with an attachment. It was a physical thing that was brought to you. That's how it was done back in the day. I can't tell you how many envelopes. And uh, by then, I'd already formed a relationship with FBI and CIC. And I literally got in the mail, uh, you know, from them. And I still got a lot of them. Um, you know, a printout from NCIC, not names, but statistical data that I was able to share. At least I knew if it had been reported to NCIC, National Crime Information Center, there were so many thousand missing persons broken down by state. They asked me not to share the entire package with anybody, but I could give out piecemeal, like if somebody asked me about California. So I wasn't, I would either give a national or a very specific stat. I wasn't going to post the entire thing like California has 30 and Kentucky has 12, you know, and this one's better because they have more. You know, it, there was a lot of things like uh, population, uh, the ability of law enforcement, rural areas. There were so many things that wasn't apples to apples. It was apples to oranges with some of the statistics. And, you know, at least I could use that in awareness. So I was trying to do that. When people were asking me these questions, I had to become the expert that people thought I was. I studied a Holiday Inn last night, and now I'm a doctor. Uh, I identified the tent girl, and now I'm the person to go to. So you have to become the person that people were expecting you to be. Uh, you know, the questions they were asking me, but good question. I'll figure it out. And then I was able to come back and have answers to some of those questions. Like, you know, okay, per my pulling together of this data, you know, and you become a natural leader in some of those areas. There were a lot of people, a lot of the early people are gone. They're dead. Uh, you know, that's been a long time ago. A lot of people passed away or lost interest, or it, maybe it was more of a hobby for them than it was for me and, you know, moved on. Don't know what really what happened to them. They just, just stopped coming back, you know, or, or life circumstances changes. People get married. People uh, become, you know, like I said, I've become a grandfather, so my roles in life have changed dramatically, but this is still um, the core of who I am, the, the common stream throughout my entire life was this type of stuff. You know, uh, you know, I had a wife that joined me and children that later joined me. I've had grandparents that passed away and people that have come and gone out of my life. But this is the one constant from the death of my brother all the way to now is this is the common thread of lost and found, you know, the, what you lose and what you find along the way. And the Doe Network has managed to keep going. And my understanding is it's a volunteer organization, right? Doe Network is a hundred percent volunteer organization, and uh, it, uh, you know, it did keep going. You know, we had a uh, after I joined Namus. You know, Namus asked me to be part of it, not just because of Doe Network, but a lot of it was because of Tent Girl. I had achieved a, a status of the first person to do this, so. When Department of Justice realized, okay, Doe Network is out there and it's actually working, and this guy actually identified a person uh, using the internet, we need to bring him in as part of this working group, which I didn't know what a working group was. That was 2007. 
Um, you know, so that was a few years into the Doe Network, what we were calling formally the Doe Network at that point in time, where uh, people were specifically uh, volunteering to do a specific task, not just part of a cold cases form. So, uh, you know, people were watching what we were doing, and some of the low-hanging fruit was being picked quickly. You know, law enforcement was catching wind of that. You know, they didn't have their cyber units. It's like, oh, my God. And, and it wasn't any great genius on anybody's part. It was at the time. It was like matching a picture to a time period, and this is the first time we've seen this uh, missing person's face. And there's Jane Doe, three counties over. Same thing. So it has to be right. And you contact them, and they've never heard of it before. Uh, you know. So and at least we had a presence. At least because of Tent Girl, and you know the oddness of Citizen Saul's thirty-year-old mystery. Okay, we broke that glass ceiling. It, it had already broke. So. Um, you know, that that had happened. I had proof that it was possible. It's like you discovered penicillin and here you go. It's true. You can do it. So nobody could say you can't do it. You can do it. It, it has been done and we'll do it again. And, you know, those those solves started coming. They weren't every day, but they started happening. And it wasn't, you know, we say amateur sleuth. It wasn't through a great deal of sleuthing originally. It was just like, Somebody poured out the puzzle pieces, and it's like, oh, these two are sky. These two are background. So it was pretty easy at first to just match the names. Now, that's not making you a homicide investigator. That's matching pieces that give you a potential tentative ID, which is provided to law enforcement. And we tried to use what I did with Tent Girl. You know, I worked directly with law enforcement, the medical examiner. You know, I was questioning with them. So I kind of knew what was going to happen next. If you made a telephone call and, and you had an ID. So I was, I was the one that knew here's what's going to happen next, or this is what happened to me. And sometimes you were telling law enforcement that, what do we do next? Well, here's what I did. And here's what law enforcement in Scott County, Kentucky did. So you were becoming the guide for some of that, you know, already. It just like, well, seems to me, I felt kind of like Andy Griffith at the time, you know, from the Andy Griffith show, like, I imagine that we might do this next. <laughs> so, you know, just saying, I don't want to tell you what to do, but uh here's that we might do this. So a lot of it's just common sense, you know, and um, I think people were challenged by that newfangled Internet. It seems like a, that's a little more complicated for us, especially people that grew up and grew into you know, senior status at law enforcement without it. And now suddenly it's there. They didn't embrace it right away. So uh, they needed somebody to work the buttons for them. And it was intimidated. I know it. And that had something to do with you being tapped to come work for NamUs? Yes. Now, the early days. Now, what I did was I did embed a site meter on Doe Network and in some of the Tent Girl pages that I had. So I could kind of see generally who was looking at them. Uh, and I did that because if we got some kind of a you know big hit on a story or a certain case, at least I might say, okay, this John Doe's been looked at by a lot of people and uh, Spokane, and he's in Palm Beach. So, you know, that's that's kind of what I was looking for. So I was trying to find new ways to mine data that I really didn't discuss with a lot of people. I was just, you know, uh, okay, we got the we got the match and the pictures down. We got this, we got that. So now let me see where the data's coming from and who's looking at it. And, you know, there was a time period after I started the radio show, which was basically I was having conversations with people. That I thought, wow, this would be great to share kind of put it in a nutshell, somebody else experiencing the same thing, so I'll just do a radio show, record it, and let people hear it. So uh, I was seeing FBI, CIA, a lot of dot doves that were looking at the website, and I thought, 
something's about to happen, be it good, be it bad. Something's about to happen. So I was uh, good 2007. So I was a few years into tent curl and I was 37 by then. So I got a few more years on me and had encountered a lot of people done countless interviews about tent curl, the network. So, you know, become part of an expert in that field. I'd even worked with Jerry Bruckheimer and, uh, Dick Wolf at the time, you know, statistics for a CSI show where they would ask me and I was the go-to person at the time, which I got far more capable people now. I'd even started uh, the possibility of having a, a TV show with Dick Wolf called Lost and Found. You know, and we did a pilot for that. So, I mean, I was becoming the go-to person. So the natural gravitation to me looked toward television, be it uh, explaining how it's really done on CSI or, or being part of a 48-hour. So, you know, the entertainment industry was the first pull for me was that, more so than law enforcement, like the awareness and education. So, uh, but I was seeing Doc Gubb. And I did get a phone call. I remember I was on the loading dock at a factory, factory I worked at. And by then, I'd worked into quality, so I had a nice job with the office where I could get on the internet and kind of do what I needed to do. Still maintain my job. Got a call, and it was uh, John Paul Jones with the Department of Justice, National Institute of Justice. And basically, they didn't, it wasn't really an invite. It was more, uh, we're going to bring in as part of a working group. Didn't know what a working group was. I had to kind of look at why they do that. Uh, and we're going to, you know, plane ticket, you're going to fly here uh, to the National Press Club. We're going to make an announcement. You're there. And I thought, well, they're just going to pat me on the head and say, okay, this guy did this, and therefore we're doing that. Have a nice life. It's a little more than that. So there was an announcement that we are going to make a national database, which is directly in what some might feel competition with Doe Network. Like I couldn't say, you don't have to build one. Well, you can have Doe Network. It wasn't that way because it was a law enforcement database. So when they announced that, I thought, okay, so what we did in the interim, in the absence of having a national database, now we're going to have one, and uh, I guess that's it. But the announcement made it sound as if I was going to be part of the working group, which I was. So I'm thinking, how the heck am I going to be part of a working group and still go to work at a factory every day? And the other working group members were PhDs. Uh, experts in the field, and I thought, what am I going to tell them? They already know. A lot of them knew it before I was born. You know, they, they know what the problem is, but there still wasn't any solutions. And I think they were grappling with how to use the Internet, uh, something they thought was just too numerous to use. There's too many cases to actually use uh, an Internet database to any success. I think they thought it would be a hodgepodge, you know, just everything, too much, overwhelming kind of like NCIC was, um, I think I've become, you're a Star Trek fan, they're Locutus of Borg. I was, their, I was their token, like, okay, this thing did it, and if we want to reach that group of people that he come from, we'll use this thing to communicate with the masses, because he, he did it, and uh, we'll, we'll see if he can communicate back with them. Uh, you know, it seemed like there was a big division between law enforcement and the public. You know, so it's like somebody's got to bridge that gap. And, uh, okay, you know, so me just going through, I did do those working groups. And uh, some of the questions that, that they were struggling with was like, uh, what all information do you share with the masses? Like, what's holdback and what's not? You know, and I felt my hand creaking up like, well, instead of just saying gold ring with black stone, you could say 10 karat gold ring with a marcasite stone. Or you might even have a picture of it that you could share because, you know, the internet's very visual. So, and if you're holding it back 30 years later 
eh, what's it going to hurt? Maybe, maybe you should share it. You know, you can hold something for a little too long. Maybe there's nobody left alive to recall it. So a lot of the data that I felt like they were holding back as their ace in the hole, uh, something that somebody would know only if they knew that person. It's just like, yeah, it's not working after 30 years. So maybe it's something you can share with people. And one of the things that we were doing with Doe Network that I was able to share, so how do we manage this? So I said, my idea of having a relationship with this medical examiner has worked out. You know, it just happened to me. So the remote possibility of people, she's in Ohio, so she's going to work with, uh, you know, in the Tent Girls family, the daughters were uh, involved in the early part. Um, they didn't stay in the day-to-day. You know, it was just like they were there in the initial phases of it and life got in the way and they had to recover from what they had, you know, the trauma that they had with the uh, girl. So they, uh, uh, you know, they kind of fell off, but I was hoping that they might be our Ohio connection, you know, that they could actually work with uh, law enforcement in the Ohio area. But those people came, you know, those people came and filled those roles. And, uh, you know, that was working out really good. So that's what I shared with uh, the people that were developing NamUs at the time, the Department of Justice. You know, Kentucky knew me when I called them, so I wasn't having to go through the spiel like with Tent Girl. Uh, my name is Todd Matthews, and I did you know, this, 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 this. There was no introduction needed after you established that relationship. And when you brought them something like a possible match, they knew that the Doe Network wasn't just throwing spitballs at the wall. You know, people had looked at it and had really thought about it. So if we were bothering somebody, we bothered them with good reason. Like, we didn't just match pictures. It was beyond that. And a lot of websites tried to do that later on. And... Uh, you know, I actually heard from people, well, we've looked at this before. So I wanted to have an, a ruled out database. And we did that with Doe Network. So when we would have something that was ruled out, uh, we'd write it down. So we know that Peggy Hauser is not that body in Tampa because law enforcement told us it was excluded based on, I don't know, maybe dental. So, you know, those are the type of things that I wanted to put into the building of NamUs. Um, and I did have an opportunity to pilot their beta database uh, for it. We called it Operation Passageway. When we piloted, my son, my oldest son and my wife actually helped us fat finger the data in there. This is completely voluntary. This is what I could do. Uh, some of the Doe Network members, some cold cases members, just people that were willing to be involved in it. So I knew about this Jane, uh, this missing person. They had already constructed a the unidentified side. They were trying to capture the essence of missing, which is the bigger fish. Um, so we were literally entering missing persons in it to see if these two databases could connect with each other. You know, uh, exclusions are necessary, and I want to know disposition of remains. And that's one of the things I asked to specifically be built into NamUs was, where's the body? Because that's the first time I hear from the family. Okay, you made an identification. Where's she buried? Do we even know? Oh, well, we want to rebury her. So I learned that from Tent Girl. I knew the first thing the family is going to ask for is, where are they? And can we have them back? So that was baked into things. You know, so I had a lot of things that I thought of that were just common sense that maybe uh, if we hadn't been through this process, maybe they hadn't thought about. You know, the post-ID, you know, uh, the relationship with the family is really important. I thought of my own brother and sister. Where are they buried? You know, so I went back to my core roots there with, with where are they? And, and how do I visit? And how did they become part of my life again? Even though they're dead, doesn't mean they're not part of your life. They are part of my life. They are. They make me who I am, and they're part of it. So that's that's it. So it's just all these common sense, and then just 
totally emotional things that we had to remember uh, that are all part of it. That was the secret for the identification. That was the secret of making these databases work was human soul, the human heart, and not just slapping a name on a toe tag. It was the resolution. It was the uh, what happened next. It was how to return them to the family, reunification. And again, once again, I felt like I'm not going to be of any particular help here, but I'll give it a shot. And then before you know it, that database is working. Operation Passageway had so little data in it. It had a lot of cases, but the data judged on what we do later with NamUs was incomplete files because we didn't have dental records, fingerprints, DNA. We didn't know any of that. We just had pictures and physical descriptions and no real identifiers that can be compared. The premise of NamUs was beyond Go Network in the fact that it didn't have DNA in it. The DNA goes into CODIS, but we have an indicator of that record goes into NamUs. We know where the DNA has been housed at. We know where it's at, so we knew which lab to go to. You know, that that's in there. But on the flip side, fingerprint records are directly housed in NamUs. Uh, the actual images of the fingerprint records, they're in there. They can be pulled up by law enforcement across the planet if they have access to that. So there's public side of NamUs and the uh, encrypted side of NamUs where you can actually see dental records, dental radiographs. So literally, you can pull up a dental record, a radiograph, an x-ray, and compare it to that of a missing person across the country in the middle of the night. So all of that had to be in there. And that's what we did. We made sure it was accessible. And uh, that's what made it work, is, is having that. So NamUs and Doe Network are not the same thing. They are not competing in any way. You know, I don't want to even think we're competing to make an ID. Doe Network can make a tentative ID. NamUs can make a positive ID different, you know, and the hesitation of law enforcement to use something that's public. Yes, NamUs is a public database, but there are controlled access points to data that is not public, that are removed for a reason. I think the Doe Network is a little bit easier to interact with if you're unfamiliar with databases than NamUs is. So I think for someone who's just clicking around, maybe trying to look for someone, that first glance at the Doe Network is really valuable. And then when someone is really digging into cases, they have NamUs. So they're both serving purposes that are parallel, but slightly different. Well, it is. And we kept Doe Network simple. You know, the geological, chronological index are there. And, you know, and you can make things complicated. Like NamUs has become a complicated database, but not in a bad way. I mean, there's necessary things that it has to do. There's necessary security uh, firewalls, there's so many things that have to be put in there that a lot of people say, oh, I have to log in for that. I don't want to do that. Um, you know, but the security is there. There's reasons for it. So if you're really interested, you can. And and to make sure they're in names, it doesn't matter if they're in Doe Network, they also need to be in names. And we made it to the point where anybody can enter a missing persons case. So even if you're the nosy neighbor, you can initiate a missing persons entry into the NamUs database. We thought with NamUs at the time that if we harness the power of the masses, that we're going to get a great deal of these missing persons in the system, and it's going to uh, jumpstart things. And it did. But, you know, there's plateaus. Uh, you get to the point where, well, not enough is coming in. There's, there needs to be more. There needs to be more. Uh, so... You just keep working, you know, and I, I see the reason, you know, and I did have somebody at, in the government that asked me, why does Doe Network still exist? And there's still a need. And now that I'm no longer with that, it's like nine years later, you know, I'm back to being citizen, citizen sleuth again. 
And, you know, and I kind of like that because I'm pursuing some things, you know, things that I couldn't do as the director of communications and case management or marketing for NamUs, which, you know, had become more or less a desk job to the point of it was paralyzing for me. You know, I'm very proud of NamUs. I'm very proud of what it's done. But, you know, I felt like I'd done everything I could do there. And I had. I had. I didn't really want to leave NamUs. It's just the circumstances happened that, uh, you know, financially, um, I couldn't be in Texas, and I think really to be a director of a program, you need to be there in in the actual physical world in the presence of other directors to be able to do that. You have to be in the building, I think. So, uh, you know, and I'm not leaving here. Like I said, got kids and grandkids, and my parents are in their 70s now, so I'm not leaving. Um, You know, some jobs can be done remotely, but others are very difficult unless you're seeing people face-to-face as you're building these things. And and NamUs is becoming more complicated, and uh, the funding was getting tighter every year. So I think at 50, you know, I wondered what I was going to do next. And I think my, my role now goes back to awareness and entertainment again. And entertainment is, is, is part of the education. Like if I go back and we're doing reality or scripted or whatever, I can make sure good quality effort goes into that. So you don't drop a piece of a drop of blood into a funnel and it outshoots the name. You know, there's a, layer of difficulty to it you know when you're looking at a grave at 17 literally i did this there was a john doe that's buried near tent girl uh you know he wasn't really part of the famous storyline he, he wasn't a murder victim but i stood at his grave at 17 and then at 47 i was at his grave again when we was reburying next to his mother that was a lifetime commitment that was a 30 year span not 30 minutes 30 years and i never once forgot about him it's just I did everything I could do with what I had to do at the time. You know, the story had to evolve. Uh, tools had to evolve. Opportunities had to present themselves. So, you know, I visited his grave many times. It's just the opportunity just hadn't surfaced to, to grab hold of it and find a way to send him back to his family. Some of the greatest discoveries that I've had have been accidents. Um, there was a John Doe in eastern Kentucky. He didn't have a grave marker. And I know how those little temporary grave markers get misplaced and you could actually mislocate a grave or not know where they're at if you need to examine the body. So I did my best to find out exactly where he was. And then I gave him a tombstone with Madison County John Doe on it. Well, before I even got home, the fact that a mysterious stone had appeared helped bring that story to national attention. Totally an accident. I would have started out that way if I'd known that. Uh, my idea was to permanently mark his grave, and you know that effort become the anomaly, kind of like with the tent girl, first person to put something on you know, to create a website for a dead body. This is a mysterious stone that appeared. And it's like, oh my God, it's totally not what I intended, but we're going to go with it. We're going to try to identify this person because of the attention, and it's all about that. I know that one thing that you told me when we first talked was that you specifically wanted to discuss some of the legal changes that have been happening in regards to better records keeping in missing and unidentified persons cases. Can you talk a little bit about that? So there was, uh, you know, build it and they will come. Maybe. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. So, uh, you know, I thought just as easy as we made it. Uh, paying for all the tools, you know, the Department of Justice is paying for all the tools, having a staff to manage it. Uh, you know, Donut was completely staffed with volunteers, and they were staying busy. NamUs was staying busy, but we're still not getting all the details that we need into it. So there's still people that just don't know about it. There's rural areas that never heard. 
you know, they don't have a missing persons unit. I don't have a missing persons unit in the county that I live in. Don't happen that often. You know, so there's not somebody set aside just waiting to issue an Amber Alert. It's a, it, you know, you deal with it as it comes. You know, so there's not somebody that needs to be logged into NamUs on a daily basis in Livingston, Tennessee. There's no reason for it. So they're not going to be immediately schooled on it. So there was a lot of effort uh, to do Billy's Law to help find the missing act as a national act. Billy Smolenski, an adult missing person out of Connecticut. And there was a pitch to make a national law uh, to require the use of uh, databases. And it was it was more more than just that, but it didn't pass. You know, so that often come up, you know, and I kept hearing people, especially like on the radio show that I did, there ought to be a law. You know, and I mentioned that before, like, you know, maybe maybe state law. And I had a writer friend of mine, Jan Burke, and, uh, you know, we talked so many times. And she's in New York, and uh, she knew an assembly man there. Um, she was a friend of his wife. And... Uh, she mentioned it to him like there ought to be a law, you know, and it's it's not that easy. You don't just write a law. Here, forever now, New York, every, if you have a missing person or unidentified person, they're going to go into a national database. I shouldn't go missing this morning and be in NamUs tonight, you know, if I just went on a fishing trip. So time periods had to be thought of, uh, the accessibility to records. And there was a state law passed in New York that involved unidentified persons that would go into a system in X amount of time. So I immediately took the uh, New York state law and, and left it with my state representative, which lives here in my hometown. In fact, my mom used to babysit him. I'm talking about the state rep, not the U.S. representative for Tennessee. He called me, his name's John Mark Wendell, and uh, worked with him on this. And, uh, you know, kind of take time off because when you're working for uh, on the Department of Justice dime, you know, there's conflicts of interest and we can't lobby. So I did what I had to do with, like, helping him create this law, like, in, in 30 days, if you're missing, not just what New York did, missing and, unident- and or unidentified in 30 days in Tennessee, you will be entered into NamUs. So that was it. You know, that's what we did in Tennessee. And uh, I had to go testify on behalf of this uh, law, you know, and, and explain why I felt it was necessary. It's like, well, we have all these tools and it's free, you know, and, and that satisfied the uh, financial needs. It's like, okay, you're already paying for this database, so your tax dollars. But if you don't use it, you're not really getting it. So you're buying lunch and somebody else is eating it. So it was that common sense that I presented to the more conservative side of the house. And on the more uh, liberal side of the house, or uh, how many people will help, what's the potential, and this and that. So there was a lot of talk. So it unanimously passed. The first time in any state, missing and unidentified passed in Tennessee unanimously. I was there uh, when that vote, and it was the most exhilarating experience seeing those green lights go boom, 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 boom. It's completely bipartisan. The argument was tucked out of it. You know, um, I needed both sides of the aisle to come together. It felt great. You know, some of the arguments in Tennessee, other states took it. Some of the arguments are, okay, well, we have the dental records and the fingerprints. Um, so, you know, we have them, but you didn't upload them. So this is a little bit of resistance from law enforcement. I don't mean to say anything bad about them, but it's like, if they're not in the system proactively searching, like I can't trust that a medical examiner in, or a missing persons detective in Massachusetts is going to look and see there's no fingerprint records to compare. I can't trust that they're necessarily going to call you and ask for a manual comparison with records that you don't want to upload right now. They're, they're, they're available, but they're not readily available. So we need to make sure that all data is not just in your drawer, but in that system. And it could cost somebody to have to wait. So that's me going back to who I am. 
I don't want to wait for that name on that stone any more than I like to go visit my brother and sister's grave. It's not enough. So, and you know, in working for Department of Justice, it's hard to criticize, you know, agencies. It's like, I really need to say that I'm not happy with what you're doing, but I'm not your boss. But now that I don't work for Department of Justice and I'm not working on federal funding, I am now a citizen again. So now I can say things. And uh, I do feel like if you have medical records uh, of a missing person or unidentified person and they're not in that system, they are not readily available. Period. There's no excuse. They're in a drawer. I can't tell you how many times I've went through the attic of a dentist office looking for dental records for a missing person. And that really wasn't my job duty. So that's why uh, being the director of case management communications was just not like I'm not supposed to be doing these things I did as the citizen sleuth and doing these things. I'm not supposed to be there when a grave is open. I'm not supposed to talk somebody into opening a grave for the purpose of collecting DNA. That's not my job, you know, but it's my desire. It's what I really wanted to do. So I realize now we have a deficit in Tennessee. There needs to be something done. And by the time this airs, hopefully there will be something done. So I go back to my state representative and I said, you know, there's something else that needs to be done. But on the medical examiner's side, uh, you know, what do I do, you know, as far as getting records entered? And most agencies are very compliant. Most are doing everything they can. Like I know from experience, you know, I've done a lot of lectures to dental hygiene associations over the years. Um, would you surrender records if I was law enforcement and I asked you for them? Sure. We do it all the time. You know, they, they, come, they fill out a form and they, they get the dental records and they put them into it. Well, what if you have a missing person and nobody calls? Well, then they don't need them. Hmm. I thought of something that uh, we're calling a resolution in Tennessee. Uh, I hope to pass it. I'm asking that if you're law enforcement or a medical examiner, that you would be compelled to enter your data into the system for proactive searching. So to resolve to do that, not hold it back, but to actually put it in there. For the care providers, trust me, I've been on the other side. We might not know exactly where that person been to the dentist. We might not know. It is not a violation of HIPAA rights for a medical care provider to say, you know, Todd Matthews is missing. I have some medical records. Should they be of value to you? I have seen that law enforcement sometimes, uh, you know, they go with gold standard of DNA. uh, well, we've got a swab. We're not going to look for dental records. We already swabbed the DNA. We're not going to look for medic. We're not going to look for anything else. We'll get them if we need them. Well, they could be gone by then. So uh, it's too easy to just swab somebody and say, okay, that's enough. That's the the ultimate test is the DNA. And it, you know, it is at the end of the day. You need the DNA. But what if the remains are found in a degraded state of decay? I've had missing persons that were found as a body, so I have fingerprints on a missing person, and there's skeletal remains. Well, there's no there's no prints to compare. I've had unidentified bodies with, okay, we can x-ray this skull all we want, and there's teeth in it, but I don't have any dental records in that missing person because nobody asked for them, or, or they've already purged them. You know, they're not compelled to keep them for any length of time. So my thought is this. Uh, if you have records and one of your patients has gone missing, to let law enforcement know that you have records, might prompt them to go ahead and ask for them because I don't think they're going to say, no, no, we got DNA. It don't have to be just dental. Uh, there's so many different things medically that could be. I've had open heart surgery when I was eight years old. Uh, the evidence is there that I've had open heart surgery. So if I was a body being examined, if somebody that performed the surgery or if my general care physician that says, by the way, Todd's missing, I have some of his medical records on prior surgery, missing organs or 
screws that he had when he had this accident or anything, or he crushed his left ankle, it should be visible if a body's found that, that he's had a healed bone, leg bone, arm bone, foot bone, you know, anything. Those things should still be present. Those things could be the, the, the starting of a tentative ID that could lead to a positive ID. It's, it's not that hard, especially not in these rural areas, to let somebody know that you have records and then let them go through their due course of legal action to obtain those records. You're not violating their privacy. This could even go to, uh, to the point of cosmetic providers. To uh, My wife has had her makeup tattooed on, her eyeliner. That might not be in my medical record, but it might be a handy clue because a lot of times these tattoos, not everybody knows we have tattoos. You know, I had a lady who some was identified. She didn't know he had a tattoo on his butt, but he did. He didn't tell mom. And, you know, the first thing she said, no, no, Stephen didn't have a tattoo. Stephen did have a tattoo. Yes, he did. He just didn't tell mom. If I'm missing, I want somebody to come look for me. Believe me. Uh, you know, it's easy to say, well, they're having an affair. There's some financial issues. There's this. Did you have an argument? And that's well and good. Most of the time, it's something like it. Most of the time, they come home. But just because somebody has the right to do whatever they want to do, I don't want to have the right to lay there and die without somebody looking for me. You know, I thought of this thing called the living will for the missing where uh, I've already gathered up my records, anything I want. And I, and I make a pledge. If I'm gone more than this period of time, I'm, I want you to come look for me. I give you permission to share these records with anybody. You know, that's just do whatever you have to do to find me. Don't, don't let my rights to be gone interfere with my rights to try to live my life. So, uh, you know, I, I call that the pledge to stay in touch. And it's one of the things that I kind of stopped working on when I started working at Department of Justice. These are the things I have to go back and readdress and relook at, you know, what can I do with them? We got to look at what's the difference between our rights and what's in public safety. What's going to protect me should I go missing? I'm a big, strong man. I'm not going missing, so nobody's going to look for me. Well, there's more John Doe's than Jane Doe's out there. So I don't want to become one of them. So even if we don't pass this resolution in Tennessee, at least we had the conversation and we all recognize the need. You know, uh, it could be the podiatrist that I, I don't know. Uh, my mother-in-law had her toes broken, rods put in them and straightened out her toes where she had toe problems. What if that identified her? Not if she don't tell everybody, by the way, I had all my toes broke. Uh, she might have people that might make the missing reports for her that don't know it that don't know that she had that or don't think it's important and don't mention it. It's easy to say if somebody identified somebody 16 years later, like, hey, we found this Jane Doe and she had, uh, had extensive surgery on her feet. Ah, oh, so did mom. Ah, oh, you know, if that had been in the file, uh, if that had at least been a footnote in the file, it, footnote, I'm sorry, that, that was an unintended joke, but if it had, you know, your foot surgery had been a footnote in the file, uh, it could have been relevant. It could have been that one little piece of data that helped connect things together or at least assured somebody to dig a little deeper. That's that forensic art. Forensic art is not meant to be a portrait. It's meant to be something that keeps your attention on those cases a little longer, to dig a little deeper. If you see something that looks like a remnant of a lightness, read it, read it. That's your prompt to read the file. Don't just gloss over the surfaces and play a game of old maid. Read it. I knew Tent Girl. I knew my Tent Girl front and back, and I was looking at their missing persons report for her. I didn't have to refer back to a cheat sheet. I knew what I was looking for. Thank you so much for joining me for this interview. I just want to ask you one more question. 
Are there any organizations that you'd like to draw our listeners' attention to that you feel need support? Well, of course, I'm always going to say donetwork.org. Uh, the more eyes looking at it, the more likely that there's going to be some resolutions. No doubt about it. There's a qualified team there that can uh, answer some of your questions, shorten your search. We hope more people do this the better, but to do it responsibly. And I think they're a good demonstration of how to responsibly be a citizen sleuth. And of course, NamUs. You know, I'm no longer part of NamUs, but it's uh, it's lost a lot of funding. Um, you know, it, I need to make sure that it stays funded. You know, I don't know what the future for NamUs is now uh, or where it's going to go, but I think it is still important to make sure that your legislators still fund NamUs. Uh, so that's important. So those are two things that I think people need to pay attention to. And they'll draw you to other things, other interests, if you're interested in being a part of it. But making sure your lawmakers knows that there is a problem uh, is the first step in resolving that problem. So I think it's important that we uh, make sure that everybody knows about it. Whether you think it matters to you or not, your taxpayer dollars are going to pay for some of these things. You should be aware of it. You don't want to be caught not knowing if you have a family member that goes missing. It's too late to educate yourself then. You know, you need to, and it's easily done through entertainment now. You know, you can listen to the podcast that, that kind of educate, at least people listening to your podcast have some idea of what to do just because they listened to a story they found interesting. That's great. That's wonderful. So you keep doing what you're doing. I hope you do a lot more of these stories. And hopefully I'll come back one day with an update and things. Thanks again to Todd Matthews for speaking with us. You can find a link to the Doe Network in our show notes, and we'll keep you updated on permanent changes regarding NamUs. The Fall Line is an independent show, and we appreciate listener support for our sponsors and for our show. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIAs, and pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes that we care about. Join us on Patreon for early release ad-free versions of our regular episodes, plus blog posts and videos. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Waters, Kim Fritz, and Jessica Ann. Family and law enforcement interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced and engineered by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd. Currently, our monthly donation is going to the Black and Missing Foundation.